I'm Katya. And I'm Rin. And we're at the Commonwealth Center for Holistic Herbalism here in Boston, Massachusetts. And on the internet everywhere, thanks to the power of the podcast. Uh, That was a real real quiet woo today. I am pretty excited about it, though. I really do love the podcast. It's a lot of fun. No, we can tell. But I'm really excited to talk about what I want to talk about today, so I'm like, ah, let's just get through this part. So, I'm going to get through this part. We are not doctors. We're herbalists and holistic health educators. The ideas in our podcast are not medical advice. We're not licensed. Nobody is licensed as an herbalist in this country. So our discussions, and for that matter, any other herbalist's discussions, are for educational purposes only. Everyone's body is different, so the things that we talk about might or might not apply to you. But we hope that they'll give you some information to think about and some things to follow up on further. Also, we want to remind you that your good health is your own personal responsibility. The final decision in considering any course of therapy, whether discussed on the internet or prescribed by your physician, is always yours. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. But before we jump in, a quick ad for you. (laughs) You guys, we wrote a book. You know that already. You want it. You need it. You have to have it. And right now, the Kindle or ebook reader of your choice version is available, no joke, you guys, for 99 cents on Amazon. I'm serious, 99 cents. That's like pretty cheap, actually. That's pretty cheap. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hey, guys. Uh, Thanks to the infinite wisdom of some sort of algorithm over at Amazon, uh, the price jumped between the time that we recorded that podcast on Thursday evening and on Friday evening when I went to edit it up and release it to you. So it's now actually $1.99, which is still pretty cheap. I love a real physical book to carry around with me on my disconnect from the internet days or my attempt to disconnect from the internet days. Mm But an ebook version is just perfect for reading on the train or when you're supposed to be working or whenever. Yeah. But it's only that cheap for a minute, like until Monday or something. So get it now. Herbal Medicine for Beginners by us. End of ad. There we go. So you've been you've been uh, typing this one to me for a minute here. Yeah, I I'm think really interested to see what you. I'm pretty on. sure that I wrote my notes for this like fifteen after minutes after yeah, yeah. yeah after <laughs> recording last week's. So so here's my thing. Um, this is a little bit of a different topic this week, but it's what's really on my mind. Um, as you've probably noticed by now, if you've been listening to the podcast for any amount of time, Rune and I have different areas of interest. I mean, obviously we love herbs, but, but we love them kind of in different ways. And when we discuss mechanisms of actions, for example, or really anything, I'm far more likely to say something like antioxidants and all that good stuff, where Rin will always provide a long list of chemical names. And it's not that I don't know the names. It's just that I don't find them very interesting. I am in a hurry to get to what I perceive to be the good stuff, which is usually the physiology of it and the synergy of it and the outcome of it. But as a woman in science, and I want to just stick a pin in that because I'm going to come back to it in a minute, um, I feel really conflicted about this. I often feel that as a woman, it's my responsibility to always use every technical word and to be really confident in the number of syllables in neuraminidase, because I always seem to have one too many or one too few, and I actually wrote it down so that I would say it properly for the recording. Um, 
But my personal area of interest, and for that matter, really the bulk of my talent, lies in understanding these things, but being able to talk about them in plain speech, as opposed to technical jargon, so that they're really accessible to non-experts in a way that is within their comfort zone. For many people, investigating a new form of caring for their health is already pushing a lot of comfort zone boundaries. So I feel like my explanation should be as plain spoken as possible, while still being accurate, of course, but um, I, I, just, I just don't want to be bound up in all the jargon. But, and that includes herbal jargon as well. Yeah. You know, one of the things that you've always tried to do when talking about constitutional medicine is to move away from words like vata or choleric or whatever else and more towards hot, cold, damp, dry, simple terms that everybody understands. Yeah, it's still the same. It's, it's the same work. It's just the words are more approachable. So, so my feeling is on one hand, why not just say the more approachable words and, and let's get, get right down to it. That's not really the way that subject matter experts are encouraged to behave in our culture, though. Um, there seems to be like this verbal lab coat of jargon that is expected um, that should be difficult to follow and highly technical. And that's how you know that the person is good at what they do. But at least in our culture. But I really think that if I'm good at what I do, then I should be able to synthesize technical information into something that anyone can understand. Because we all have a body. It's one of the most common points of reference that there is. So I, I feel that um, the stuff that I'm saying about bodies and the way that we manage our bodies should be from a common point of reference. Mm-hmm. Plus, I don't want a lab coat, verbal or otherwise, because that elevates me as an authority over the people that I'm working with. And I'm not that. Um, Legally, I'm not that, right? A doctor is. Legally, I do not have that status. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to be that either. I want to work with my clients. I want to collaborate with my clients. But I want to be a peer, I've, I've spent a long time learning this stuff, and I may be an authority in the subject matter, but I'm not an authority with a capital A, like an authority figure who should be obeyed or whatever. I'm a collaborator, and that feels really important to me. And the way that I speak conveys that. So the other problem here, and I want to put giant air quotes around problem, is that I'm really much less interested in following long trails of chemical processes than I am in the practical relevance or the outcome of those trails. So how can I, how could I use that information to educate another person about what's going on in their bodies in a way that's tangible to them, and then use that to, make, to motivate them to make changes in their behaviors that will provide better health outcomes? That aspect is utterly fascinating to me. It turns out that it's extremely difficult to get a human being to change their behavior. And if you've ever tried, then you're probably laughing right now. <laughs> but it also turns out that I'm pretty good at it. And, and that's, that's what I mean. Like that's where, that's where my talent for this work is. And, and it's also what fascinates me. Like how do we do that? But it's also true that in our society and in the, in the fields of science in general, we don't really value this talent. And yet 
to me, it's it's not only the most fascinating thing that I can spend my time thinking about for like basically the last bunch of years, but it's also, I have found the most important thing in having success as a practitioner. I would rather someone have a smaller herbal vocabulary, a small number of herbs they know really well, and a broad vocabulary of helping people to get them into their lives than an enormous herbal vocabulary or compendium or whatever, and not much skill at helping people to actually put that into practice. The difference between knowing the one perfect herb that completely matches the symptom picture and is totally going to solve all of your problems and actually making that herb accessible to a person in a way that they're going to take it enthusiastically. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and not just herbs, but other kind of lifestyle changes like how to shift your diet, how to get more sleep in your day and all of that. You can tell somebody that, but... Yeah, but it's not very good advice if you, if you just say, yeah, you, you should give up sugar. Well, thanks. Telling, telling is not even half the battle. No. <laughs> right. Like, everybody knows that they should eat less sugar. Anyway, so that's, that's what I want to be talking about. That's what I want to be thinking about. And especially right now, given the whole topic of the 2016 election and the investigations around how social media played a role in that whole thing, and the debates around how much people are actually affected by influences they see in media or how much of it is just bias confirmation. I do think that the idea of human behavior is starting to become more interesting to researchers, but the field as a part of science is really in its infancy. And also, um, not just in its infancy, but um, I think that our ideas about how to apply it and why to apply it are also fairly juvenile, perhaps, Mm. can just sit, throw that out there. So as an herb... Cer- certainly in the realm of practice. I mean, like, there's, yeah. there's been some really good investigations into that, like that book, uh, Behave, by... What was the author? Uh, Zapolsky. Robert yeah. Zapolsky. So it seems like we have a lot of information that hasn't, like, trickled down into practice or into culture at large yet. And But also I think that even the information that has trickled down is mostly centered around getting people to buy things. <laughs> sure, yeah. So applied it, applied psychology in the realm of advertising. Yeah. It's, like, super, t- super like, sharp. Right. Yeah. But in terms of, like, getting people to um, make positive change in their lives or make important change in their lives or whatever, like, I feel like that... That's why I use the word juvenile in the second, because I feel like it's not, it's not just young. It's also like oriented toward making things go your way. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But, but this is, this is like literally the most fascinating part of herbal practice for me. And the reason is because our, our behavior as individuals is completely at the core of the kinds of health issues that we get today. So we're not really facing epidemics of infectious disease. We're overwhelmed with what one of our mentors, Paul Bergner, likes to call STDs. And for him, that means sugar-transmitted diseases. But I'd like to make the case that it could also mean sedentism-transmitted diseases or sleep deprivation-transmitted diseases or stress-transmitted diseases. Um, and if right now you're thinking, oh, Katya and Rin are always harping about food and movement and sleep and stress management, then you win. Yay. But that, like everything that we're dealing with today, these are the things at the root of it. And the problem with that is there's nothing to kill. 
I mean, except your habits. But there are no antibiotics against sugar. And, you know, our pharmacy students come in and they talk to us all the time about people who buy six Snickers bars and a Coke when they come in to fill their diabetes medication prescriptions. And I don't mean to imply with that that these are bad people who are making themselves sick or they deserve it or they're stupid or any of that stuff. These are people who have been captured by sugar. Sugar is eight times more addictive than cocaine, according to oh that study that came out, Cornell or a university in Connecticut, maybe. We'll link to it in the show notes. That is, by the way, the same study where they found out that rats, just like people, prefer to eat the frosting center of an Oreo before they eat the cookie part. And <laughs> that is super amusing to me. I'm so glad that we finally got that nailed down. <laughs> um, but... but that's the thing. Like, there's no drug you can make for changing habits. And all the diseases that we really are focusing on right now are about habits. And none of those habits come because we're bad people. They come for all kinds of reasons that I really want to talk about. But but I just want to be clear that none of it is because we're bad people or, you know, like we just didn't have good willpower or whatever. Mm. There's a lot of components to changing these behaviors. The behaviors around the food that we eat or the way that we move through a day and the amount of time that we allocate for sleep and the quality of sleep that we get and the way that we manage our stress. And it is absolutely not as simple as, well, just don't do that. Or or like I was saying, even worse, if you had any willpower, you wouldn't do that. Like you hear that all the time. And we even say it to ourselves. Like I love sugar. And I say, like, oh, come on. You know, like we say these things to ourselves. Most of the time, people know that they should have less sugar or that they should go to bed earlier or exercise more, but they don't necessarily know what that would look like in their own lives. And they don't necessarily have the ability to implement something that they can't envision, right? So just because you know that sugar is bad for you, doesn't mean that you know, like, you've got all these products in your house and you don't know what the alternative products are that you like. And you, how much time do you have to go shopping and figure that out? And it's not as simple as just saying, I know I shouldn't do that. And then somehow magically it's going to happen that way. The other thing is that there are addiction factors involved on top of all of it, whether it's sugar or the internet, our brains are totally hooked on these things. And then for the total trifecta here, there's also societal norms, which don't currently reflect healthy human environments. So that means that in order to change, we don't just have to know satisfying foods that don't have sugar in them and have the, quote, willpower to make those choices. But we also have to deal with the fact that people are addicted or that we ourselves are addicted. And we also have to deal with the fact that our culture is telling us it's okay. America runs on Dunkins. <laughs> like, we hear it every day. And let me assure you, if I were not allergic to Dunkin' Donuts, I, I would eat them. I Whatever. There's also a physiological aspect to all of these behaviors. So you might have seen that thing that went around. We'll link to this too. It was a 
um, bigger than a meme. It was like a blog post. Uh, what happens to your body if you drink a Coke right now? And it lays out all the physiological reactions that your body has however many seconds and however many minutes after drinking a Coke. Um, and we could we could really write out profiles like that for basically any kind of input. So like what happens to your body right now if you eat a Dunkin' Donut and or whatever. But also what happens to your body right now if you if you log on to the Twitter, you know, or mm. whatever. Um, we could do it for any kind of input for movement or sleep, like positive or negative ones. Um, and then we could also write them not just about what happens with the first Coke you drink, but all the subsequent Cokes that you drink. Um, and uh, you, might, you might know or you might not that I have a software engineering background um, in, a, in a previous life, <laughs> in a previous career. That's what I used to do. And I had coworkers literally who had like 15 to 20 cans of Coke a day at the mm. office. I don't know what they drink when they got home, but just at the office or Mountain Dew sometimes. So like what, like we should write that profile out for what happens, at, what happens in day, in this day after the 15th Coke that you have had, that you've mm. drank. So when we're looking at these things and when we're looking at health, and uh, the behavior modifications that we can do to improve our health, we also have to take into consideration all the other inputs and the physiological reactions to them that accumulate over time, right? So it's not just that today I made a choice to have a can of Coke or whatever. It's that I have these particular habits and they have each each time I engage in that habit, it has a particular impact, and that impact accumulates over time. So we're looking at how do we uncoil not just the habit itself, but also the impact of the habit. And for me, being able to take this really complex problem and break it down into simple, accessible steps that will fit into the reality of an individual person's life and then help them envision not just the end goal, but also the complete pathway of how they're going to get there. That's really fascinating work. And it is different for every single person that I work with. I might know that I want three different people to have a very similar herb that they are going to work with and very similar dietary changes that they might want to make. But the way that I'm going to get that person there well, I'm not going to get them there. They're going to get them there. But the way that I'm going to help them envision getting there, the way that I'm going to help them think about how they're going to incorporate that in their lives and how it's even going to be manageable and practical and enjoyable, that is what's so, so fascinating. And at this point, I think I should probably say for the sake of transparency that these are things that are also particularly difficult for me. I am totally sugar addicted. I would much rather sit and read or knit than work out. Um, I always want to stay up later working. It's super difficult for me to stop working and do something as completely unproductive as resting. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's really important to say this stuff because sometimes you come across practitioners and they're like marathon runners or whatever, and you think, oh, well, they have no idea what it's like to struggle with this stuff. And I, of course, everyone struggles with things, but... I think it's really important to let people see that I'm struggling with these same kinds of things every day and to be clear that this is a path that we're on together and the destination is not perfection. It's just good enough. I'm never going to run a marathon. I don't even want to. And 
if you want, if you run marathons, that's totally cool. But I'm just using that as an example of something that's not really accessible to me. And it's also a, a sort of image that many people have of if you can do this, then you are healthy. Yeah. Which we could interrogate that image a bit as well. But, <laughs> um, but you know, it's it's the kind of thing that people sort of hold out there as a as a as a goal or as an unattainable ideal or something like that, um, and that really gets into people's heads. Yeah. But at any rate, I think that it's so important to be upfront about my struggles with this, not just because it sets me at, it sets me on the level of a peer with the person that I'm working with, but also because you know I've been there, and I don't know. There's I love the West Wing, and there's this time it comes up several times where one character says to another character, um, you know, one character is having a really hard time. And another character says, yeah, but I'm helping you because I've been in that hole before and I know the way out. Mm-hmm. And it's one thing to know the way out in words and to, and, to, and to know the way out is, well, just stop eating sugar and you won't feel so bad. But that's, not, that's knowing that there is an exit. It's not knowing how to get to the exit. Yeah. And I may not always succeed at giving up sugar. I definitely do not always succeed at giving up sugar. But... I have figured out some ways that I can make it work and even even dumb things like I prioritize work and productivity over things like exor- the self-care of exercise. And so if I really am having trouble exercising, then I need to figure out how to exercise as work, like stacking a bunch of wood. Oh, that's work. I need to do that. So I will, but it's also exercise. Or... If I start thinking about sleep as productivity because my liver has a huge to-do list um, and those things can only get done while I'm sleeping, then now I've reframed sleep as something that must be done um, and something that's about productivity and not necessarily about rest. And I don't, it's just mind games, but it's these kinds of mind games that allow us to change our behavior and so that's what's really interested for me interesting for me and the bottom line around this is that i think it's really important for people who are going to become clinical herbalists or actually basically anyone to be educated in the chemistry of physiology and also in phytochemistry the chemistry of the plants themselves it's important for a couple reasons one Because it's the foundation that we use to understand what we're doing and then to be able to explain that to others. So you can't make it easy for someone else to understand if you can't understand it first. We need to be able to understand it. Mm -hmm. But also, I frequently find myself in discussions with doctors and oncologists and surgeons and pharmacists. And although some of them are really interested in what I do and in how we can work together for the, for the person that we're supporting, many of them are really only talking to me because I'm one of the people on the team providing care in a particular person's life, and they have to. They're not thrilled about it. But just like I want to meet a non-technical person in a way that's comfortable to them, speaking to a medical professional in the jargon of their profession actually has been a great boon in helping them realize that my purpose is to collaborate with them and not antagonize them. So I do think it's really, really important. 
But I also think that it's critical for any herbalist, and especially for one who's going into practice, to be really well-steeped in constantly pushing themselves to understand human behavior, and especially their own. Because otherwise, it's really difficult to put all your chemistry knowledge into practice. I guess so basically what I'm saying is that both of these things are really, really important. Between Wynn and I, we often divide up tasks according to our interests, and although we each try to be pretty proficient in all aspects, we definitely do have some areas of specialization, especially when we teach. I definitely tend to let the jargony words fall to him and the explanation, the long explanations of chemical processes and whatever, because he's really interested in those. And uh, prime methoxyhydrocarbon is a quorum sensing inhibitor. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I'm super interested in quorum sensing inhibitors too, but I'm much more likely to refer to them as biofilm busters because that's a word that people are more likely to have heard. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but so I, I definitely kind of, um, enjoy the fact that he's super interested in that because I think that that's very important for our students to hear, but I don't want to spend a long time making sure I have each syllable of those words correct unless I really need them. And I'd rather stick to the the behavioral aspects of, of things because that's what's most interesting to me. But I worry about the message that I might be sending as a woman, as a woman in science, if I let that particular aspect of specialization fall along traditional gender roles. It's not, you know, again, it's not like I can't do it. I just, I just, when I'm teaching, I'm so much more interested in getting to the good stuff, you know, as I perceive it. So... I don't know. I also think that it's really important that as a society, we become much more aware of the scientific aspects of why humans behave the way they do and how we can help people make changes in their behavior that is not just about buying stuff, but is about really um, striving for their best selves and doing doing the best thing for their bodies, their own bodies in this in this moment and in any given situation. So I don't know. That's just what's on my mind lately. Remember when I said stick a pin in that because I want to come back to it later? Um, So I want to come back to that now. And what I had said was, as a woman in science. And in case in that moment you were thinking, well, but you're a woman in herbalism, I just want to clarify, um, it's the same thing. So it's true that a lot of the foundational science of herbalism was done on a macro observational level by which I mean before they invented microscopes. But science is observing, making a hypothesis, and testing that hypothesis, and lather, rinse, repeat again. And humans have been doing that for a really long time and keeping records about it and replicating those those experiments, which is the whole scientific nine yards. That's not the same as saying, just open any old herb book and trust whatever is written in there. Um, definitely don't do that because, uh, you know, just because it's written in a book doesn't mean that it's accurate. And just because it's written in an old book definitely doesn't mean that it's accurate. They wrote crappy books a hundred years ago, just the same as they do now. But it's really important that we understand that we didn't invent knowledge when we invented microscopes. I think it's a trap that United Statesians are particularly prone to falling into because our culture tends to emphasize exercising the past in favor of the new frontier. And there, 
there, I mean, there's a lot to be learned from looking at scientific microscopic investigations of plants and of phytochemistry, but that's not all there is. And I think it's important to, to hold the micro and the macro. And if we're going to err, I would prefer to err on the side of the macro because that's where the original science for this system was done. Yeah. There is an art to herbalism, to be sure, but it is irrefutably science. And I don't know. Those are just, that's just what's on my mind these days. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> so um, I was going to do a pretty quick one today. Something much more practical, I hope, because there was nothing really very practical in that. <laughs> it was just a rant. No, no, there was a lot practical. I mean, that idea that, uh, just a reminder for everybody that, you know, you can have a validated double-blind placebo-controlled trial about how the anthocyanins and rose hips are going to influence the inflammatory process and all of that, but... If somebody doesn't want any rose hips in their tea, then you've run into a problem, right? So, And if you can't explain it to them in a way that that's really relevant to them, hmm. then even if they, they they're just not going to do it. It doesn't quite get there. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So what I was going to talk about this week was a um, concise, like one, two, three kind of a protocol for dealing with heartburn. And I want to just say up front that I'm going to attempt, this time, to restrain myself from noting all of the exceptions to the rule and all of the ways things can be a little bit different, and you might need to tweak it like this and change it like that, and just say, look, here's a a pretty successful protocol that we've used dozens of times with lots of different clients and many more students than that uh, who've tried it out, and it's it's usually extremely successful. So... uh, all right, so the simple version. So you've given the your mileage may vary caveat. Yeah, yeah. So now you just have to like sign, sound a buzzer or something when I started on that halfway through. <laughs> um. Well, your mileage may vary, but it's still a car and you're going to get somewhere with it. There we go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because we all have bodies. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, but it's not a car. It's actually a protocol. Yeah. All right, so um, if you have heartburn, the first thing you want to do is stop the actual burning you're experiencing right now. So... The number one herb that we found helpful for that is marshmallow root. And you can take some marshmallow root. That's been our herb of the week this week. Indeed. Yes. You can learn more about marshmallow on our social media, I guess. Yeah. Check I've out been our posting Instagram. about it all week. And uh, the blog post for it will go up. Oh, I'm a little behind on those. But real soon now. One of these days. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. So marshmallow root. Uh, and for this to work effectively, you need to make a cold infusion. So... Cold infusion means you're going to take, say, two or three tablespoons of marshmallow root, and you're going to drop it into a quart-sized container, and you're going to pour in some room temperature or colder water. So it doesn't have to be ice water, but it, you know, room temperature or colder will get you what, it, what you want. Leave it in there to infuse for at least four hours. Overnight is probably the best way. Um, but if you need it fast, you can kind of accelerate that a bit. If you infuse it even for just 10 minutes but shake it real good, then it will start to release what you're looking for um, and start to be effective. But the best thing is, if you're somebody who's got heartburn, to make up a whole quart of this and have it ready and have it on hand. And anytime you feel your heart burning, go ahead and take a few big gulps of the marshmallow root cold infusion. And that will soothe and coat and relieve some inflammatory processes and 
have a cooling effect. Um, it works very rapidly. One of the nice things about marshmallow root infusion here is that it doesn't neutralize your stomach acid. It just covers over the places where stomach acid isn't supposed to be. So whether that's up in the esophagus or if there is like an ulcer in the stomach where there's some exposed tissue, um, marshmallow root is going to coat and cover those areas and relieve the, the feeling of burning and, and the damage that the stomach acid is doing when it's getting into those places it doesn't belong. Um, so this is important because in many cases, heartburn is actually not a, an issue of high or excessive stomach acid, but rather a, an indicator of low stomach acid. And there's a big long explanation for that, which I would love to leap right into, but let's just say that 80 or 90% of the time, people with heartburn have low stomach acid and not high. And so we don't want to do things that are going to neutralize acid. We don't want to just throw Tums or, or a, a acid-blocking drug at the problem. That may cause some temporary relief, but it's not fixing the root of the issue. And in fact, it's often making it even worse. So, uh, all right, so we've stopped the immediate burning with your marshmallow root, and you can keep on drinking that. Um, for a while, it's going to help to quell the inflammatory damage that's taken place. Um, it's just a handy thing to have around if this is a problem for you. The next step is that we need to um, calm down some inflammation, and if there is any ulcer or any open um, irritations in the upper GI tract, you know, in the esophagus or in the stomach, we need to heal those up. Um, we need to, to resolve those wounds. And so here we're going to be using a variety of different vulnerary herbs. Uh, vulnerary, remember that word means wound healing. And there's a lot of options that you've got here. Some of my favorites uh, include calendula, uh, plantain leaf, licorice root, and meadowsweet. And each of those um, in their own time and place have been uh, popular or renowned for their efficacy in coping with heartburn. You can just put them all together. That'd be great. Um, but basically, get yourself a, a friendly vulnerary herb, a nice wound healer, and um, make an infusion of that, and drink a lot of it. Drink like a quart or two a day uh, of that wound healing infusion. And just to drop a note in there, when you, when you say wound healing infusion, or when you hear that, you might be thinking, hold on a minute, um, I didn't cut myself you mm. know, on my skin or whatever. But the cool thing is that um, these herbs, these vulnerary herbs, they're working on thelial cells. So you have thelial cells in certain different parts of your body. The epithelium is your skin, and that is um, made up of cells that are stimulated by these plants to, to proliferate so that they can heal over a wound. But you have the same type of cells inside in your endothelium, which is the lining of your digestive tract from top to bottom. And those, those cells, even though they have a little mucousy slime over them, they are otherwise the same type of cell. And so the same herbs that stimulate wound healing outside of your on the topically on your body also stimulate the the regrowth of healthy cells lining your digestive tract. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, again, this is this is particularly important if there is an ulceration um, or if there's just been like extended, um, like a long-term uh, issue with the heartburn where there's been some 
some inflammatory damage and some even some changes to the the cells themselves that are lining the esophagus. Um, they just become a lot more irritable and red and inflamed and everything. So we, we need to calm that down. Um, so yeah, so you know, if the first step was we're going to work with a nice thick demulcent to coat and soothe, um, and marshmallows are key there. Then step two is about vulneraries, wound healers. Again, some examples there: meadowsweet, calendula, plantain, licorice root. There are plenty of others. You could look at St. John's wort here. You could look at goldenrod. You can look at self heal or yarrow. But um, you know, find the find the one that you've got around that tastes good to you. Because again, you're going to want to drink a lot of this and keep that up for a few days to a week. After that, you should be ready to restore stomach acid uh, to ideal or to to. I'm hesitating to say normal, but <laughs> let, let's just say to, to an ideal level for your body. Um, and the major way we're going to work with this is bitters. So um, pretty much any bitter is going to help you to accomplish this and work out really well. But our personal favorite for this stage is calamus root. So calum uh, or rhizome, if you want to be super technical. Um, but so calamus is a really delightful bitter. Um, it's a pretty low barrier to entry. A lot of people who don't enjoy the flavor of many other herbal bitters will uh, be happy with calamus and, and be willing to take that. Um, even if you don't like it, work with it anyway. <laughs> uh, you really need to mm-hmm. get that stomach acid back up to a good healthy level. And calamus is quite good at this. Um, it's nice because it's not generally going to overstimulate you. You know, it doesn't take somebody with normal acid levels and make them you know elevated or high or irritating. Um, it has a, a nice way of bringing them up to the level they need to be at, but not further than that. So for those reasons, it's really our favorite. But, you know, if you have some dandelion root or you have some artichoke leaf or you have even some centauri around, then you can work with those. Um, but if you're not sure where to start, uh, calamus would be a really great option for you. Um, and you're going to take that ideally, um, most importantly, would be before meals. So if you take it like 10 or 15 minutes before you eat... Um, the idea here is that it's going to stimulate some stomach acid, help you digest your food, and through a whole train of pathways that um, I'll save for another day, this is going to help to relieve or reduce the propensity for heartburn events to take place. Um, so there you go. And from there on, you might want to maintain that as, a, as an ongoing habit. I mean, I take bitters before meals a lot of mm-hmm. the time. Not every time, but when I remember, when I have them around, when I'm at home, you know. Well, and it used to just be a human habit. I mean, it used to be part of our diet that, and in fact, if you go to other places in the world, um, it still is to have a bitter salad or um, bitter soup or some other thing before the meal, even a bitter cocktail before the meal. That just used to be regular everyday practice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So step one, demulcents, marshmallow root. Step two, vulneraries, meadowsweet, calendula, plantain, whatever. Step three, bitters, trichalamus. And there you go. So uh, we've walked a lot of people through that and had really good success. We're by no means the only herbalists who proceed in this manner. Um, but uh, if you cope with heartburn, then give this protocol a try and let us know how it goes. Heartburn, it's as easy as one, two, three. <laughs> it's the dvb protocol for heartburn (laughs) yeah all right cool so that's us for the week um yeah 
We've got our advanced students this weekend, and that's really fun. We're talking to them about stress and the endocrine system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that should be a good weekend. I have to meditate in class. <laughs> yeah. All right, cool. So we will be back again next week. And in the meantime, be happy, be healthy, be well, drink your tea. Drink your tea and take some bitters. (laughs) Yeah. See you later. Bye-bye.